You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. O Holy Spirit, our faith looks up to you and our ears are turned to you. Preach to us, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. It's inevitable if you're around the Advent for almost any length of time that you'll eventually hear us talk about the distinction between law and gospel. It's a distinction that we believe is of astronomical importance. It's a point of clarification of the first order when it comes to understanding Christianity, but more importantly, when it comes to being Christians and being human beings. But we're aware that not everyone buys into the concept, and perhaps others simply don't see its relevance. In fact, I think I saw some eyes glaze over when I said those words, distinction between law and gospel. But hang with me. This passage from Romans 10, even the entire epistle of Romans is one of the seminal places in Scripture where this distinction is made and its relevance for our everyday lives is revealed. Furthermore, it's inevitable that if you're around the Advent for almost any length of time, that you'll realize that we care a lot about what I'm doing right now, preaching. We believe in the preached word as a, no, the principal means by which people who don't know Jesus come to know Jesus, and by which people who do know Jesus are sustained in Jesus, which is why at the Advent you will never hear by God's grace what I'm doing right now referred to as a talk, or as teaching, or even a homily, because it's a sermon, it's preaching. It's why you will never hear one of us referred to as a speaker. A pastor I know was once brought into a church to deliver a sermon, and he was introduced as the speaker of the day. And his response when he got up, speaker? I ain't no speaker. If you wanted a speaker, you can pick one of those up at Radio Shack. I'm a preacher. (laughs) Romans 10 is one of those places that convicts us that this weekly pulpit event ain't just no talk, ain't just no teaching, ain't just no speaking. This event where we all, including me, hear the word preached is a place, the context, where God creates fresh faith in us. So today, let's hear from Paul. Let's hear from the Lord on these two things. We'll spend most of our time on the distinction between law and gospel, and we'll touch on the power of preaching. So I know that for some, probably, if not many here, talking about something like law and gospel seems to be the furthest thing from your concerns and problems right now. Let me tell you why it's the exact opposite. And I'm going to start by making a pretty bold statement. Everyone in this room, irrespective of race, socioeconomic background, sexual orientation, occupation, religious preference, or lack of a religious preference. Everyone in this room is beholden to the forces of law and gospel in their lives on an everyday basis. And yes, they are forces. I just recently watched Rogue One, 
and I'm reminded of the centrality and power of the Force in the Star Wars worldview. I'm here to tell you, Star Wars fans, that the Force is real. It's not an indefinable, nebulous power presence, though. The good and providential ying to the dark side's yang. The scriptures define this force as the word of God. The living and active word of God. Moving, acting, piercing, dividing, rending our souls asunder and stitching us back together again. And we see this word coming at us time and again in two forms, in the scriptures and in life, as law and gospel. And you and I are subject to this force, law and gospel, daily. And Paul here explains how it works. He distinguishes between two kinds of righteousness. He calls them a righteousness that's based on the law in verse 5 and a righteousness that's based on faith in verse 6. Now, I'm sure some, if not many, are thinking, righteousness, that really has no relevance to me. I don't stay up late thinking about righteousness. But I will tell you that every human being, for every human being, righteousness is everything. Righteousness is king. Righteousness is the operating system running in the background where, of whatever is keeping you up at night. Righteousness is the reason we get into so many arguments with our spouse. Righteousness is the reason we stay awake at night regretting the email that we sent earlier that day. Righteousness is the reason we're obsessive, controlling parents. Righteousness is the reason we feel aimless and lifeless in our retirement. Righteousness is the reason our stomach is in knots as we await the stress of a new school year. Righteousness is the reason we can't stop ourselves from getting into arguments on Facebook. Righteousness is why racism takes to the streets of Virginia, insisting on violence. How is this so? We need to see righteousness as akin, as related to worth and value. And when our sense of worth and value is threatened, either because our spouse is pointing out that we're not perfect, or because the email we sent shows us to be a short-fused hothead, or because our sense of success is wrapped up in our kids' good behavior, or because our sense of significance was found in the work that we no longer perform in retirement, or because we feel like we matter when we make good grades, or because being told we're wrong on social media strikes at the very core of who we are, or because our evil sense of superiority through our racial identity is challenged. When that worth and value, that righteousness is threatened, all our insecurities come flooding out. And again, here in this passage, God distinguishes between two kinds of righteousness. A righteousness that is based on the law that will kill you, and a righteousness based on faith that will free you. The red pill that will lead to your death, or the blue pill that will lead to your life. So let's talk about this deadly red pill. We'll define it this way. The righteousness that comes by the law is an orientation of life that seeks to find ultimate fulfillment through the means of our own effort and achievement. I'm going to say it again. The righteousness that comes by the law is an orientation of life that seeks to find ultimate fulfillment through the means of our own effort and achievement. This kind of righteousness is ubiquitous. It's the law of the land. It's everywhere. 
It appears in religious forms as it did in Paul's day with the Judaizers and the Pharisees. But it also appears in tons of non-religious forms in Paul's day and in ours. Again, righteousness by law is any striving after ultimate fulfillment through the means of our own effort and achievement. The athlete whose singular drive is that championship trophy or top stats or gold medal. The woman who is consumed by her body, diet, exercise, scales, mirrors, and yoga pants, and who cannot rest until she is finally sculpted. The student who sacrifices health and friendship for endless late nights of study. The pastor who's enslaved to pleasing people. The workaholic that can't stop checking email at home. And Paul's ironic question to all that striving is, how's that going for you? How is that working for you? Are you satisfied? Have you found what you're looking for? The righteousness that comes by the law, have you achieved it? key symptoms of the life operating out of the righteousness that comes by the law. And friends, I'll be honest, I only have to open my own diary to find these things. Anxiety and worry, uncontrollable anger, self-medicating behaviors and habits, escapism, persistent judgmentalism and superiority, cycles of unsustainable busyness and crashes, a need to be right, And on and on and on. These are all symptoms of the life sputtering on the tainted fuel of the righteousness that comes by the law. You see, righteousness isn't really a religious word at all. It's a human word. It's the currency which every last human being spends in social commerce. It's why dictators are insatiably thirsty for power and why false religions abound. It's why America has an entire industry devoted to health foods and why we can't stop checking those push notifications. It's why single people often can't be content being single and why married people can't often be content being married. The righteousness that comes by the law, this purchasing of ultimate fulfillment on the capital of human effort is the meanest kind of addiction We can't stop seeking after it, and yet it is killing us, eating us up inside. Righteousness by the law, and this is truly diabolical, even leaks into the discipline of Bible study and theology. In a class of the Advent a few weeks ago, Mark Ginolet spoke about how the theologian Karl Barth emerged out of the fog of how German theological liberalism taught him to read the scriptures. Here's Bart's breakthrough insight. He said, What I found was the Bible was not a mirror to my best moral self. The Bible was an invitation beyond myself into the world of the living God. You see, in the discipline of studying and reading the Bible, we can approach it through the righteousness that comes by the law when we're always looking in it for our best moral self. The irony of that pursuit is that the Bible was never given to us by God, to help us find our best moral self. It was given to us to help us find Christ. And Christ can't be found in the crazy-making pursuits of the righteousness that comes by the law. And so into this vortex of craziness, Paul declares, there is another way. He says in verse 4, Christ is the end of the law for everyone who believes. 
He says later that there is a righteousness, a justification for one's existence that is found by faith in the one who is the end, the goal and the fulfillment of this law. Not meaning that the law doesn't have any application to us anymore, but that the human project of finding fulfillment through it is over. And Paul follows that up even with more radical claims when he says that unlike the exhausting and complex, tangled up pursuit of the righteousness that comes by the law, the righteousness that comes by faith, he says, is near you. You don't have to go far to get it. You don't have to go up to heaven because heaven has come down in Jesus. You don't have to dig down to the bottom of the earth because Jesus came up from the grave. He's here for the taking right here. Gone are the strivings, the heavy sweats, the constant disappointment of never getting it. Confess, Jesus is Lord. Believe upon him and you will find that fulfillment, that liberation, that salvation that you've been trying unsuccessfully to find through your exhausted efforts and striving. To prove this, Paul does some Old Testament theology, some peering into the Old Testament, quoting Deuteronomy 30 in two places. But he surprisingly leaves out a phrase from each quote. The full line that Paul quotes from Moses is this. Who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear and do it? But Paul only quotes the first half. Who will ascend to heaven? And then stops there. He doesn't go on to quote the next line in Deuteronomy 30, 12. That we will hear it and do it. That they will hear it and keep the law. Paul has faith making a a statement that excises, that cuts out our own works, our own merits, our own power, our own ability to do what God has called us and wants us to do. Paul says that faith doesn't make that claim. And even more profound, in the place of the missing phrase, in the place of the missing boast of the people, we will keep your law, Paul places Jesus there, particularly highlighting his death and his resurrection. The net effect is this. You and I have failed to keep God's law. The righteousness that comes by the law, seeking our fulfillment on its own and on our own, is bankrupt. But there is one who has done it for us. And there is one who has died and risen again to seal it for us. Christ Jesus, who went down, and Christ Jesus, who rose up. This, friends, is the shock and the surprise of true Christianity, which contrasts it with all other human pursuits and every other religion on earth. All other schemes of religion are ultimately spiritual variations of the righteousness that comes by the law. But the righteousness by faith is completely different. Grace from God. The kind of grace that has the power to alter your eternal destiny and therefore alter your life right now is obtained not with a grab, but with an open hand. The good life is not to be achieved as the goal of our grit, but received as the gift of God's grace. The grace of God isn't laboriously captured by effort, but simply confessed with the mouth. 
For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift. And then, in a critical statement, God tells us how this kind of faith is birthed, bolstered, and strengthened in us. It answers the question for the religious person, for the irreligious person, and for the ex-religious person. It's the same answer whether you're here today as a Christian, or you're here today not sure what you believe, or even if you believe. If you don't have faith, how do you get it? If you do have faith, how do you get more of it? It comes through hearing preaching. Hearing preaching. Not first through tasting, touching, smelling, or seeing. No, faith comes by hearing. Now certainly what we're doing right now is we're hearing preaching. This act, this pulpit, it's the center of God's faith-producing enterprise. But make no mistake, Christian, preaching doesn't only take place right here on Sundays. Christian, you are God's pulpit. You are a preacher. You are a proclaimer of the good news. Those beautiful feet, they aren't just my feet. You've got gorgeous feet too. When you hold the chalice before one of your brothers and sisters during communion and you say, the blood of Christ which was shed for you, you're preaching. When you don a choir robe and lead us in hymns and sing anthems and alleluias and you proclaim Christ there, you're preaching. And congregation, did you know that the scripture says that you're preaching when you're singing together? Colossians 3.16, let the message of Christ, the gospel, the word about Jesus, dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. But even beyond the service, Christian, in your work, at your school, in your neighborhood, you are a pulpit. And you have the blessed opportunity to proclaim the only word that could ever free another human being from the exhausting rat race of a righteousness that comes by the law. Christian, you are a bearer of the gospel. You are a bearer of the words, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Christ Jesus died for you. Christ Jesus rose for you. You are forgiven, free, loved, adopted, brought in and covered. You see, in this room are numerous pulpits of this message, the only message that can free. The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. Receive him. Believe in him. And then, dear brother, dear sister, remember this, that you ain't no speaker. You can buy those at Radio Shack. You're a preacher. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.